The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Good evening, everybody. I just want to say a couple of things before we start sitting. The theme for the evening talk is working with the inner critic, freeing yourself from the inner critic. Anybody have an inner critic? (laughs) You might know of somebody who, you know. So as you're sitting, I want you to pay attention to the quality of your thoughts, the tone of your thoughts, and to pay attention to whether the critic, the judge, or whatever name you have for the tyrannical voice inside, to see if that arises in your meditation. Judging, critiquing, evaluating your meditation, your mindfulness, whether your mind wanders and gets distracted or not, just to to notice the tone and the quality of how you talk to yourself if you do in the sitting. At ease. <laughs> Don't need to go looking for it, but just to, just to pay attention to the quality of how the evaluating, judging, critiquing mind arises, and maybe what effect that has on your experience, if it arises at all. Otherwise, continuing to practice in the ways that you've already know and been instructed to. Thank you for coming. Am I on? So if you can't hear me, please indicate. Can you hear me okay? I know you were struggling earlier. Can you hear me okay? Yeah. You can? Yeah, Yeah, great. So um, welcome, everybody. Nice to be here. It's been many years since I was here. I think about five years. I think you have a new carpet since I was last here. <laughs> Looks very much more polished out there and lots of different faces than I remember from last time and some familiar faces. So um, what I wanted to talk about tonight um, was the uh, presence uh, of the inner critic or the judge or whatever words we give it for the voice inside that uh, tends to make our life miserable by thinking that we're not enough, not perfect enough, not doing it right, deficient in some ways. Um, and uh, I just led a, a day long at Spirit Rock on Saturday um, and the place was uh, packed. And as I realized, oh, this is a popular theme. <laughs> 
because it is a, sadly a popular theme because it plagues most people I know, it plagues most students I know. Um, I, I notice when I meet somebody who's not plagued with the inner critic, it's quite striking. So when someone's quite free of uh, s- uh, negative self-evaluation and putting themselves down for not being enough in some way. Does sounding familiar, the critic? Uh, there's a bunch of names. Um, different authors have different names for them. The perfectionist, the taskmaster, the inner controller, the guilt tripper, the destroyer, the underminer, the molder, the killjoy. These are some of mine. The belittler the self-doubter, the inner tyrant. Anybody else? Do you have any names for yours? Your little pets that you carry around? Or they carry you around or push you around or drive you around, right? So I like to speak about this theme because I see in working with students uh, and myself how crippling it can be and how undermining of our meditation practice, our self-worth, our value, uh, and just our basic well-being, that the patterns and habits of the mind uh, that are oriented towards um, seeing our faults and our deficiencies in a way that uh, uh, cripple us into a sense of shame or uh, what Tara Brach calls the trance of unworthiness. So in terms of the context of uh, where this fits into the Buddhist teaching, <clears throat> as you may know, um, in, in days of old, teachers often taught more in parables, stories, myths, and metaphor. And the Buddha was no exception. And, and as the teachings were written down, one of the ways you can understand this presence of the inner critic is the presence of Mara. Mara is a mythological being uh, in Asia known as the Lord of Death or Ignorance or the Force of Darkness that's both uh, considered an um, um, externalized being but also uh, in part of our inner psychic structure. And uh, so at times in the text, the Buddha's seen to be in dialogue with this, this figure called Mara who's a big killjoy, and who's always on the Buddha's case. Um, so the, the most significant time when the, he appears to the Buddha is on the night of his enlightenment, where he is, um, consider- because he's the, the, the symbol of darkness and ignorance, um, he's not very happy about the Buddha about to attain full enlightenment. And so he comes to the Buddha and uh, tries to assail him with fear and doubt and lust and anything to distract him um, and in his last, his last kind of pitch to get the Buddha to stray, he says, uh, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to sit on this throne of enlightenment where all the great Buddhas have sat from time immemorial? Who do you think you are, Mr. Siddhartha Gautama, to take this seat? Does that sound familiar? Who do you think you are to take your meditation seat? Who do you think you are to be free. Who do you think? Blah, 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 blah. And the Buddha, um, um, not buying into this taunt, he simply puts his hand to the earth in the beautiful mudra, which many Buddhas have uh, depicted. Uh, it's called the Bhumas Pasha Mudra. 
And the, the Buddha simply says, the earth is my witness. The earth is my witness for my right to be here, for my, white, for my right to take this throne of awakening. And what I love about that, that story is um, that he's, the Buddha is basically saying we all have this right. We all have this inherent worthiness to be here and to take our own seat wherever we are, to take our own seat on this path of awakening. And so as the story goes, Amara realizes he's defeated and uh, winces and slithers away disconsolately. What is interesting is after the Buddha uh, has attained uh, enlightenment, Mara proceeds to harass the Buddha throughout his life, including on his deathbed. So it doesn't, this, this, this force of uh, self-doubt or um, disparagement or however you can understand it uh, continues to uh, visit the Buddha periodically and mostly in, in, in encouraging the Buddha to give up the enlightened life, to give up the creating this big sangha of enlightened nuns and monks and um, just to kind of take it easy and have a quiet life. Kind of like the voice that comes to us in the morning, you don't need to meditate, you know, you, you've had a hard day, you've had a hard week, be nice to yourself, just kind of chill out and have a coffee and you know, it's all okay, you can meditate tomorrow. Um, and, they, and every time the, 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 the Mara arri- arrives, at some point in the dialogue, the Buddha says, oh, Mara, I see you, I see you. And on seeing, with mindfulness, on seeing, on that clarity, Mara fades away. So nothing can stand up to the light of awareness, which is the same is true in our own mind. When we see the tricks and the habits of our own mind, that are disparaging or putting us down in some way without validity, when we see it with presence, with awareness, we go, this isn't really true, this isn't helpful, this isn't useful, this isn't uh, supportive, and we can can disidentify from that particular thought stream. But, uh, for many of us, this is a very pervasive uh, uh, presence. It certainly was for me when I first started practice. And um, as was true in the Buddha's life, it has continued to <laughs> arise in my own life periodically, sometimes in very difficult times and with great vehemence, other times pretty mellow. But it's also in the culture. We live in a culture of uh, that's... Uh, oriented towards uh, highlighting our deficiencies and uh, uh, inadequacies. Um, I came across this magazine when I was in a Kaiser waiting room the other day. It was from uh, some slimming magazine that I only read in Kaiser waiting rooms (laughs) because I don't clearly need to do slimming. and it says, get moving, tricks to squash your inner slacker for good. <laughs> you slackers. <laughs> Just what we need, right? <laughs> so, did anybody notice it in meditation? I asked at the beginning of the meditation for you to pay attention to the critic, the judge, anybody notice some 
negative self-talk. Yeah, one honest person over there. <laughs> or one mindful person, a few of them over there. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, what the, I'll, I'll, depending on how much time I have, we'll go into the little, the, the sort of the history of why, the, the origin of the critic and from a psychological perspective. The, what's interesting in, in talking to a Buddhist audience or a meditating audience about this theme is that uh, a critic that develops at an early age, usually fully formed by the age of eight, sometimes known as a superego, um, that is, that is uh, originally develops as a mechanism, as an intrapsychic mechanism that helps... Uh, Helps our ego to to um, uh, uh, orient in our family structure and our, our cultural uh, system to uh, basically uh, act in a way that ensures our survival. So it's it's a very early, somewhat primitive survival mechanism that uh, will. Um, uh, that inherits the norms and the values of the of the system around us that um, we have to fit into to receive love and attention and affection and approval and and all of that. So it basically is it's a system of right and wrong that tells us how to keep on the straight and now as a young being, so we ensure the the goodwill of those around us. Very important. And then those those norms, those values, those ideas get, get encased, enshrined, and they entrench over the years. And then we carry them into our adult life when they're no longer less necessary. And then they, they, they enters in other realms in our lives, including our meditation. So many of you will probably have a meditation in a critic, a Buddhist in a critic, where the critic will be telling you, well, you're not mindful enough, you're not compassionate enough, you're not much of a bodhisattva, you're a bit of a slacker, really, on a Sunday morning. And all the different ways that will pick up different things that you get into and then use them, and Buddhism being very idealistic and uh, uh, with many different practices and ideals to, to aspire to. And, of course, we fail um, frequently in our pursuits of that. Then it's more fodder. So we have to be very careful. I, I see this time and time again. I'll give a teaching about some aspect of the practice, and then people will use it to beat themselves up. Oh, God, now I'm not really very kind, or I'm not generous, or I don't have much gratitude, or I don't have, you know, whatever it is. Does that sound familiar? So we want to be careful about how we pick up these teachings and not to give fuel to this part of the mind. And, of course, we will. So it's a question of how we work with that. This is a cartoon that I like to read uh, from Rhymes with Orange, which is a wonderful cartoon strip. And it's called The Checklist of Feeling Pathetic. <laughs> Choose somebody and compare yourself favorably to them. Examine your face closely in the mirror and notice all the flaws. Relive, these are things we do, like to do in meditation particularly. Relive embarrassing and awful moments that occurred years ago. Make a mental note of all the people you regularly disappoint, including, the, including those who share your last name. Disregard all compliments, especially from people who supposedly love you. And this woman's getting a compliment. Hey, you look great. And she's thinking, don't patronize me. And lastly, resign yourself to 
to believing that from now on this is how you'll always feel. So funny and painful at the same time, right? Comparing yourself to people unfavorably, reliving embarrassing, awful moments that happened years ago. It's amazing what we do with our minds. It's amazing what our minds do. Um, you know, there's the, some of the research about that when we daydream and, and get lost in thinking and spacing out in the day, that somewhere it happens between 45 and 60 to 70 percent in the various studies that I've read. Um, the net result of all that thinking and daydreaming and spacing out is we feel worse afterwards, mostly because the places we go to are not very happy. We go to worry and fears and catastrophes and disasters and, and deficiencies. It wouldn't be so bad if we went to Hawaii and you know, was dreaming on a hammock and drinking Mai Tais, but no, we go to really terrible places. It seems really silly. That's not a judgment. That's just a <laughs> compassionate mm-hmm. response. So when I tune into my own critic and, and I listen to other people's, it, it, I feel like it's saying several things. One is it's not okay to be human and, and to have ordinary human foibles. It's not okay to be who you are. It's not enough to be who you are and where you are. And it's always a reminder that you're not doing it well enough, right enough, or good enough. That you inherently are not good enough as you are. And I don't know if you've noticed, but the critic always has really good 2020 hindsight. So it's always telling you how you could have done it better differently, quicker, efficiently. But of course you couldn't because you acted based on the information that you had at the time. We always do the best we can in the moment and sometimes our information, our judgment is limited. So it has a very unforgiving tone, unforgiving flavor. So I I notice mine a lot. I'm a big outdoor backpacker and nature waller and um, and I notice it in the places where it's really unnecessary and extraneous so I'm backpacking I'm hiking along the trail and it's a beautiful day and I notice my critic will be going like well why didn't you take the other trail <laughs> I know that would have been a much better view it would have been less steep and how come you forgot your favorite hiking boots like how come you're wearing these hiking boots you know, and what about that campsite? You know, the other campsite was better. No, 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 no. And it's just clearly redundant and painful, though. And it's also, there's, a, there's a, 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 an aspect to it that's, that's a, a lose-lose. So, like the example I was giving earlier, you're, you're lying in bed, it's early, you're tired, the alarm goes off to meditate, and the thought comes, oh, you know, just take it easy today. You know, it's, it's, you're not feeling so well, and, you know, you're going to go on retreat next week, so it's okay, you get a little credit, you know. And so you, lie, you sleep in, and then you, you get up later, and then the alarm goes off, and, and the thought goes, oh, you're such a slacker. You're such a loser. You're never going to meditate. You're never going to get your practice together. Hard to win with the critic. So, the reason I'm talking about this is because 
like with anything, we want to bring everything into the light of mindfulness, everything into the light of awareness. The more something is seen with mindful presence, the less we're identified with it. The more possibility there is to have space around it and to have choice or to have some more creative, responsive uh, attitude towards it. I want to read something from Viktor Frankl, who uh, had such profound writings from his time in concentration camp. We who lived in concentration camps can remember the men who walked through the huts comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. They may have been few in number, but they offer sufficient proof that everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's way. The last of the human freedom, to choose one's attitude. So with mindfulness, with presence, we have more possibility of choosing our attitude our response to our outer and inner circumstances, in this case, to the critic. When we can look at our critic with some presence, we can choose whether we buy into it, whether we believe it, whether we ascribe to it, whether we follow its dictate. If there's no awareness, then what happens is we just go along believing it, buying into it, and feeling somewhat oppressed by it, defeated by it. So think about the places that the critic manifests for you in your life, in your work, in your relationships. Anybody do relationships perfectly? (laughs) How about parenting? How about the parents in the room? I mean, that's just a setup for the critic, because nobody can be a perfect parent. It's impossible. I was once working at a, uh, I do mindfulness consulting in different companies, and I was working with uh, some folks in a hedge fund in near where I live. And I went into the company one day to do work with a couple of clients there, and there was a particularly jubilant atmosphere, and because the, one of the traders had made a particularly good trade that day, this was pre-crash. The hedge funds were still looked upon with great glee. And... Um, the trader had made a trade where it earned the company $50 million that day, uh, which I thought was a pretty good day for a day's work. Um, and I saw him later that day, and I expected him to be feeling pretty, you know, pleased with himself. And he would look very stressed, and I said, what's going on? And I hear you've, made a, you've done really well for the company today. And he said, yeah, it was a good, it was a good result, but, um, you know, I knew I should have sold later, I should have held on a few more hours and I would have made a few more million for them. This is a great example. It's never enough. Whatever we do, from this perspective, from this point of view, it's never enough. No pleasing. The inner tyrant. So, I mentioned that this arises from a sense of, it's a survival mechanism, the way we fit into the, the, the culture of the family system. Um, and we can, f- we can notice its manifestation in different ways. So sometimes it comes through as, as, as a thoughts, as mental constructs. You're hopeless, you're bad, you're wrong, you're not enough, you're insufficient. 
look at all these other people doing it better, blah, 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 blah. Sometimes we just feel it emotionally. Sometimes it's, it's, it's pre-thought, or the thought has arisen, but we don't catch the thought, and we feel it energetically. So you know when you're feeling under the influence of the critic, because either physically you feel a little collapsed, a little deflated, the mind is foggy, emotionally you feel defeated or deflated or despair or hopeless, energetically you feel kind of heavy and saggy, like the wind's being taken out of you. So for me, sometimes when I'm feeling a fogginess or I'm sitting at my desk and I've done something that I'm not happy with and, and I'm feeling some deflation, but there's no thought content, I'll actually try to bring it up. I'll ask, what, what is this feeling? What is this sense of energy, this the deflation, this hope? What, what, what's the thought? What's the view? What's the belief that's... that's if, it could, if this feeling, energetic, emotional state could articulate itself, what is it, what, what would it say? Oh, I messed up. Oh, I really blew that conversation. I really uh, was unskillful here or there. So I can, so I can see what the view is, because we need to identify the belief system or the thought so we can have something to work with. It's harder to work with just the deflation and the energy. So from the perspective of mindfulness, the good news about working with this part of the mind is what I see with, in both in meditation retreats and classes and with, with my clients is that when people start paying more conscious attention to this part of the psyche, uh, they can make a lot of shift in terms of their own uh, mental well-being. My experience is the inner critic is the most prolific causer of misery that I know. Maybe aside from physical health uh, or sickness. Um, in terms of our mental suffering and depression and all the states that arise from it, I see it crippling and undermining people's well-being and happiness. It's the voice that comes when you're, when you're not doing anything at all, you're, you're in meditation, you're sitting at ease, and it just undermines that sense of being able to relax. Well, what about this? Well, look at your... How about cleaning out that closet? What about those bills that you haven't paid? You know? Look at your body, look at it. You're so, you're so, oh, you're so overweight, you're, so, you're such a slob. You know, it, 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 it's an underminer of, of ease and keeps a certain restlessness going. So, what do we do with this voice? Normally what we do is we try to rationalize. We try to defend ourselves against it. Well, uh, I'm not really a slob. I mean, I went to the gym last week and... You know, I do walk to work and uh, uh, uh. the problem with any kind of what I call engaging the critic is we give the critic authority. So as soon as you're in rationalization, you've lost. You can't actually, you can't, it's like arguing someone with somebody about God. You can't win or lose that argument. It's, it's, 
The same with the critic. You can't win an argument with the critic. The critic will always find another response to whatever you say. So, and to start arguing with the critic means you're giving validity and authority to a part of your mind that you really don't want to be giving any attention to at all. Because really the critic is just a bunch of thoughts, just like everything else in the mind. It's just a bunch of thoughts. Incredibly powerful if we give them that authority. And if we see them in the light of awareness, it's just a bunch of thoughts. They're repetitive. They happen to be repetitive over several decades, so they have some gravitas to them. But they're just a bunch of thoughts. And when we were working with a, with a, a student on um, retreat at Spirit Rock, he's an actor, and so you know, living in the world of the outer critic. You know, many of us work in, in fields where there is a lot of critics, critics out of, in, in, the, in the arts and the creativity, um, or work, we've been critiqued. And he was walking down the hill, and his judge was on his case about not walking properly, you know, not doing the mindful walking properly, and you know, as if you could walk incorrectly. And he just, re- he just he, there was a sufficient space and mindfulness to see that this, you know, the, the tyrant, the mind was just going on and on and on. He just realized, oh, it's just a bunch of thoughts. It's just yakety yakety yak. That doesn't really have. It just, it could be saying, the sky is blue but just happens to be saying some negative things about me that I don't have to pay attention to. So pay attention to how you relate to your critic. Are you afraid of it? Often we act in our lives out of fear of uh, getting disapproval from our critic. We are afraid, just like we're afraid of fear, we're afraid of the critic's bombardment. So we keep our lives and ourselves small and safe so we don't encourage wrath. So notice when you do that. Notice when you limit your actions or your courage because of fear of messing up. Particularly when it comes to decision making. How many of of you are paralyzed or get get anxious about decisions because you don't want to make the wrong decision because if you do, you're going to give yourself hell? Yeah? Mostly, mostly it's, it, we're our greatest enemy in that, in that respect. So, I want to be sure to, to say that uh, when I'm talking about the judge and the critic, I'm not talking about critique itself or, or judgment itself or evaluation. There's a place, just like there's a place for thinking, there's a place for critiquing, for evaluating, for judging, for uh, uh, discerning, discernment. So I'm not saying we throw all, throw all those things out, but to make the distinction between, you know, we can, we can, at the end of this meditation, you can look back over the last 45 minutes and you can critique your practice. Well, how was my practice today? Was it concentrated? Was it relaxed? Was, it, was, was mindfulness balanced with energy and concentration? Were the factors of concentration present? You know, many different ways to evaluate. Was I, was I distracted a lot or not? That's just simple critique. Versus, well, that was a waste of time. I mean, look at you. I mean, you're just all over the place. I mean, you, you just wandered here and there, and you wanted to think about dinner, and what's the point? You may as well give up now. Right? That's a judgment that has a negative emotional tone that makes you feel technical term, like crap, <laughs> basically. So, two very different things. So, there's a, so, so I'm really wanting to make this important point that 
we're not saying there's, there's not a place for discernment and evaluation and critique, but to see the distinction between that and, and judgment which makes one feel bad, unworthy, shame, useless, less than, deflated. Another thing that's interesting to notice is um, we allow the critic to uh, remind us of our faults and mistakes and deficiencies ad nauseum. So say we do something and we mess up. You know, we let somebody down, we uh, are not there when somebody needs us help, or we... um, you know, forget forget a dear one's birthday, or in many many all many many ways we can we can mess up in communication or in, in you know. and then the critic, if it's on its high horse, will remind us of our of our of our mistake about fifty times a day. So the comparison I like to make is. Imagine your best friend was walking behind you and was imitating your critic and giving you feedback every few minutes about you and your dress and your weight and your performance and your style and your communication. And, right? you, you know, particularly if you'd messed up about something and your, critic was remind- and your friend was reminding you every couple minutes, you know, you really screwed up. You know, you're really a mess up. You, know, you should just give it up now. You, you know. You, you would turn around and say, thank you, I, I heard you the first time, I got the message, I messed up, I'm looking at that, make the intention not to do it again, thank you, go have a nice cup of tea somewhere else. Right? But with the critic, we don't, we just let it go on and on and on and on, we sort of feel being beaten down and beaten down, and wonder we feel depressed sometimes because we beat ourselves down. Sometimes we're loyal to the critic because we think we need it, want to get out of bed, to do our practice, to get anything done, and because we think it's the voice of conscience and moral authority. The, 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 the critic takes the high ground of that which knows right and wrong, good and bad, but actually through our own presence and awareness and conscience, we have a much deeper access to, to what's right and wrong. We don't need to look to the critic for that moral authority. So some ways to work with a critic, and I, I'm, I'm, condensing, I'm condensing a whole day's workshop here into a talk. Um, one thing that's useful to do is to see if you can identify whose voice it is. Sometimes our critic has a very distinct voice. Oh, this really sounds like my dad or my stepmom or the vicar, or the pope, or whoever, some, some character in my past, my, my brother, uh, my, high school, my primary school teacher. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it reminds us of how our parents talk to themselves. It's a very similar pattern. So we imbibe it we, through osmosis. So mindfulness is our greatest ally. One of the things we can do is every time we notice we're judging, we just make a note. Oh, judging, judging. And there's another judgment. Whether it's going inward, outward, 
both. If we do what we do inside, we do outside, and what we do outside, do we do inside. So every time you notice you're judging, whether it's somebody's shoes, the way they walk, politician on TV, ourselves for our meditation or not getting our shit together, whatever it is, oh, judging, oh, judging. So we, we want to create space and some distance between ourselves and the judgment. Try counting your judgments in a day. So tomorrow, your homework, if you're interested in this subject, count how many times you judge. And you'll be surprised. It's a lot. You're using 723, 954. <laughs> and at some point you go, you yeah, know, this is really silly. And it's really boring, too. And there must be something much more productive I can do with my mind than just judge everybody. So naming the judgments, counting the judgments, writing them down is very effective. We have bring a much more discerning, critical uh, discernment to the written word than to the words in our head. So write them down. And then ask yourselves, is it true? Is this really true that I'm a loser? that I'm not going to get my, my stuff together, that I'm going nowhere, that I, whatever the story is. So write them down. Even better, actually share them with somebody. I know it's like... <laughs> <laughs> but it actually helps to do this with a partner. I do this when I do these workshops. Um, it helps neutralize it and also helps normalize it. We say, oh, we all have the same stuff. We might have different words, but it's basically the same not good enough. It's like, oh, really? And if, or, and if you share them with your friends or your loved ones, I can guarantee you they won't have that same point of view. And even if there's some concurrence, they won't be rejecting you for it. They might love you for it, or they may feel compassion for you for it, but not judging you for it. Meta practice is a wonderful support to work against the critic. Meta practice is, is, a, is, as the Buddha talked about, as a replacing practice for negative mental states. Replaces hatred and fear with love and kindness. So instead of saying, you wake up in the morning, well, what are you going to mess up today? May I be happy? Well, you're such a loser. May you be peaceful. Well, you never, you know, you're so disorganized. Thank you. May I be happy? <laughs> so you just supplant it, you just replace it with a, with a, a statement. You know, so if you've got 797 judgments a day, then you have 797 meta-statements. What, changed, what turned things around for me was when I began to feel the impact of the judgments in my heart. When I began to, instead of being an ally with the judge, I became an ally with myself and began to feel what it's like when you talk to yourself like that. And it's actually really painful, just as if someone else was throwing that stuff at you. It really hurts to, to put yourself down day after day after day. And if you feel that, if you really feel that in your heart, at some point, the heart will say, I don't want to do this anymore. That's what happened to me. It's like, I don't, I'm, I, I, don't want to, I don't want to believe this stuff anymore. This is really unhelpful and painful. One thing you can play with is um, uh, sensing into the opposite. So whatever the judge says, oh, you're such a loser. See what it's like to feel the opposite. I'm really successful. Oh, you're never going to get your life together. I have everything I need, and I'm perfectly fine just as I am. Whatever the, whatever the opposite would be. It's a really useful practice. There's a whole lot to say about that another time.
you can ask, is that true? Humor I find the most, the most useful. I used to put my big wig on my judge, English, English wig. Bad meditator, bad. I exaggerate. Yes, I'm the worst meditator in the world. Or you do a Tai Chi move and you say, thank you. Thank you. I'm really terrible? Really? Thank you. That's really helpful. Anything else? Oh, I suck at that too. Great. Thank you. Anything else? Okay. Because the, 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 that part of the mind is looking for opposition when you just go, oh, really? Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I'm, 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 not, I'm not very organized. You're right. Thank you for pointing that out. Great. So again, it's, it's a movement. Humor helps us disidentify, just as mindfulness does. Sometimes I, I, you can speak the truth of how it feels. Ow, that really hurts to call myself a loser. Wow, that's painful. Sometimes you can be fierce, like you would with if someone was, was beating up on your friend or a child. You say, no, stop, enough. This is really unkind. Enough, I'm not going to listen to this. There's a place for that in meditation too, or in our lives. So I have to stop here, unfortunately. I just feel like I'm getting going, but... Um, <laughs> I'll just leave you with uh, something, a poem or something. How about Mr. Walcott? Always a good poem of self-kindness. So I'm going to have to come back and do part two of this talk. (laughs) Um, So this is Derek Walcott, Love After Love. poem some of you I'm sure know well. The time will come when, with elation, I'll try and put my David White voice on. The time will come when, with elation, you will greet yourself arriving at your own door. You will greet yourself arriving at your own door in your own mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here and eat, sit here and eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you all your life. Give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you have ignored for another who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit, feast on your life. Peel your own image from the mirror. Take down the desperate notes. Sit and feast on your life. So um, that's all I have time for. I, but mostly I want to say how nice it was to be here and to see you all, and may you be free of your inner critic. Thank you.